Uh, New York City, because unlike every other city in the United States uh, after World War II and suburbanization, because New York City remained as a place that people wanted to be, it had very serious problems with urban blight or what have you, but it never got bad enough that you had like wide-scale depopulation. So New York is kind of the last, I believe, the last city in the United States with large-scale public housing. To understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Hello, Rob. How are you this week? Not bad, Rory. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and I'm quite pleased because I've recently bought a house. That's exciting. Congratulations. It is. Well, it's a bit of a fixer-upper, so smashing out fireplaces and all the rest. But that's what brings me on to what I would like to talk about today, which is how to fix housing. I can't think of a bigger and more important topic. Uh, it's uh, probably one of the main main drivers of how screwed up U.S. politics uh, are today, uh, for one reason, but we'll, we can get into that later. Uh, it, it's a tremendously important topic, and I think it's well worth uh, picking, Rory. Well, I think we'll focus on a city that's seen as doing it the best throughout the world, consistently voted one of the best cities to live in, and that would be Vienna. Have you ever been there yourself, Rob? I've been there only briefly. I've always wanted to spend more time there, but I, I poked around uh, some museums for a couple days at some point in the past decade. Uh, never really gotten to know it, of course, but uh, had a delightful time uh, for the brief day or two I was there. It is well. It is a wonderful city. I would say possibly one of you know top tier city. Would you say up there of New York and Istanbul? Well, what's fascinating about it is that it has no right to be, um, but it is for historical reasons. Well, it was the center of of a quite important uh, empire at a point. Exactly, Rory. The operative word is was. Um, uh, but that that's what's so fascinating about Vienna and why it's such an extraordinary destination for uh, art lovers like myself is that. Um, yeah, it was one of the main powers in the European state system from the 1500s until uh, I think there were the Habsburgs moved, popped back and forth, like they might have spent a century in Prague or something. But for from the 1500s until uh, 19, 1918, uh, it was one of the top three or four seats of power in Europe. And the fact that it is no longer, I think, actually adds to some of the the attractiveness of the place it's a it's a place that feels like an imperial uh, capital feels it's got you know everything you might want but it there's a little less going on there so it's a little cheaper um for and a little cheaper for some other reasons too well one of the the main well if we want to start at why vienna is such a reasonable place to live in it seems to be very affordable compared to a lot of other big uh, cities throughout the world. We'd have to go back to, are you aware of uh, Red Vienna? Uh, not super aware, but I, my uh, there was an incredible socialist push uh, in the aftermath of uh, World War One, famously brutally crushed in Germany, but it, it seems to have had a little more, uh, a little more oomph and a little more staying power in, in Austria. Is that the case? Well, sadly, it was crushed at a point, but after World War One, there was an emphasis on rebuilding. I think the main thing Austria is praised for is a lot of countries rebuilt after World War Two, and they did a lot of social housing. I'm trying to think what the term in America would be. I think uh, public public housing, public housing, council housing, it would be called here housing projects. The projects, housing projects, mm -hmm. aka the projects. Indeed. Um, they basically started building after World War One, but they never stopped. In most countries, it felt like they did it for a decade or two. You could see as like um, Reaganism might have been like the final bullet for it in America. It's funny, Rory, as you mentioned, that as I'm, I'm sitting here looking out my window at a very large housing project. Uh, New York City, because unlike every other city in the United States uh, after World War Two and suburbanization, because New York City remained as a place that people wanted to be. It had very serious problems with urban blight or what have you, but it never got bad enough that you had like wide-scale depopulation. So 
New York is kind of the last, I believe, the last city in the United States with large-scale public housing. Most of the other public housing in the United States has sort of been dispersed and broken up and blown up. It's actually, I, I think, yeah, that's a plot point in The Wire, a famous HBO TV show about, um, about the inner city uh, in the United States, Baltimore specifically. Public housing is mostly dead in the United States. Except for in New York, where we've got a, it's a multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, agency uh, run very poorly. Wouldn't it have a lot of stigma in America? Yes, uh, stigma certainly, uh, certainly built around it uh, as it became more desirable uh, to simply move out uh, to the suburbs. Um, if you couldn't hack it in the city, you could hack it in the suburbs, and then if you couldn't do either, then you were stuck with public housing. Um, and that led to a lot of very, very grim circumstances. So one issue or one thing that Vienna does is it, it's just keep it's just kept on building as if as well, because it always needed housing. Uh, this is something it seems like it's focused on not treating it like a profit, like it's treating it as a public good. While most countries felt like particularly English speaking countries, um, there seemed to be a pushback at communism. So there was this idea that you would be able to purchase your house and this is something you should work towards instead of just you being handed the money, handed the homes. I think Vienna was lucky in that it had a sort of blank slate, not obviously not entirely a blank slate. There are many old, very old and very beautiful buildings you can find in Vienna. But in the aftermath of World War One, the dismemberment of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that was headquartered in Vienna, there was a sort of and especially with the, the, the advent of some socialist leaning uh, governments in Vienna, there was a, a true opportunity to sort of start things anew. I think that in the United States, we had an opportunity to sort of start things anew in the post-World War II era when suburbanization, um, white flight, uh, went to a really extreme new level, but there was no question of uh, housing being a public good. The way that things are organized in the United States and in, I believe, a number of uh, English-speaking countries is that your home becomes the primary uh, driver of whatever wealth you're able to accumulate, uh, which is very different uh, from the way things are done in Vienna. And I believe, uh, I think Germany's... Um, yes, Germany's seen as do, uh, doing something similar, and maybe Denmark as well. Just very, very different ways. And Vienna's an extraordinary example. Singapore is an extraordinary example. Uh, the, the question is, how do you go against entrenched power in these places where a different model is so firmly established. And I've yet to see a really convincing model of how, how that can happen. Well, I think one way it was done is being able to tax land, essentially. Mm -hmm. So quite often a developer can buy a plot of land and just wait or lobby the government for it to be changed. Mm -hmm. And then once it's changed, they reap all of the benefit. While in Austria, it tends to be a focus on if that does happen, the government then take a lot of that profit because it's the government that's changed the zoning and thus it feels like it should be the one that benefits from it. Government intervention and private property, Rory? Exactly. Well, that's socialism. Well, yes, it is a bit because it was the Socialist Party idea. <laughs> well, I, I, presumably everybody in Austria is miserable and, and standing in bread lines and the housing must be terrible. Is that what, is that, is that uh, what it's like? Global uh, livability rating has Vienna number one. Wow, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's weird. It seems like if you can live in a house and be treated with dignity and respect that uh, it can bring about a bit of happiness. But surely we're moments away from uh, Venezuelan-style starvation. How long has this been going on, Rory? Surely not more than a week or two. Uh, a good few decades now at this point. Uh, like a good few decades or most of a century? Yeah, getting close to most of a century, yeah. I think why I love this example and why I was so excited you brought it up is it's, it's, a, it's a great illustration that, that so little of the world has to be the way that we... Um, we have it currently organized. It was entirely possible to take a better path um, and a path that results in better livability, better affordability, and uh, Vienna has taken that path. I think one aspect is when I was talking about this, you know, social housing or uh, what was it, project housing, um, is that quite often it's something that only the very poor are eligible for. 
mm-hmm. or you have to jump through a lot of hoops. But it appears to be about eighty percent of um, people living in Vienna are eligible. So it's, it's something that you can basically get if you want it, unless you're in the super rich, which at that point you probably don't want to. You, you know, you don't feel like you need it anyway. So I feel like that takes away the the stigma of it, and it just makes it feel like a normal thing that you do. And it's also really important because that creates a constituency of it's an educated middle class that knows what its rights are, knows how to advocate for things, is capable of and has the votes uh, necessary to preserve uh, and protect and enhance um, this way of organizing uh, one city and one's real estate market. But that's actually a very important part of it, which is keeping the middle class there so you don't get, what was it, white flight you called in America? Well, white flight is a more broader, is a broader uh, concept, just the white folks leaving inner cities, inner city housing of all natures. Uh, I read, it's been years, but I read uh, sort of a history of public housing in the United States. And at its outset, it was not uh, the, the sort of uh, mono-ethnic ghetto that they became. Um, there really were, uh, you know, uh, immigrants from Europe and, and uh, all manner of folks who lived in this public housing. It was the problem with white flight specifically is that uh, poorer or more lower middle class uh, populations that were white were given a way out, were given a, a new option, cheap, plentiful housing in the suburbs. And that option was simply not available to uh, communities of color um, because of explicit racism, because of historic wealth gaps, uh, and that's sort of the, 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 the white flight thing. And then it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. You know, fewer and fewer uh, middle-class people, white people live in this public housing, so the few that are left are more eager to leave uh, because they begin to feel like they're on the outs. Uh, the, the quality of the uh, because of that lack of resources, that lack of, you know, sometimes racism-based, sometimes simply time-based, that lack of ability to influence local government, um, you know, the, the, the housing stock declined. And that's what we saw in city after city uh, in the United States. And that's, that's certainly part of the broader phenomenon of white flight, but it's not specifically applied to public housing uh, in its use in the U.S. Well, the, what Austria tries to do is basically instead of having people leave and getting, uh, you know, moving to the suburbs is to make these places look desirable to, you know, they almost look like hotels. They have swimming pools. They look great. You're like, well, I want to live here. And it does, it seems to only cost, what is it? 20% or 20% of your income. There's, it, there's various different um, structures of housing, but for the generic public housing, quite often, it's just like, it will take so much of your income regardless of what you're making and that'll include utilities so it says the average in vienna is 600 euros a month wow and to give a context i think ireland something like 1600 so what three times more i don't i don't know anybody in new york who pays less than two thousand dollars a month for liberty um that's uh so yeah i've heard that uh a big issue that America's having is a lot of people are paying about half or more of their wage on just, you know, idling, paying someone else's mortgage. The problem is that we've organized, I think the, the homeownership population in the United States is somewhere around 58% or something along those lines. So you've got 58% of the population that has all of its wealth wrapped up in this physical property that they own and desperately does not want a Vienna-type situation. They do not want uh, options for renters to be increased. They do not want uh, more housing to be built. Uh, they don't want any of the healthy things that we would, you know, would be nice to see and nice to do. Um, it is against their interests. Uh, for there to be more options, because then the prices of the already existing housing stock that is owned by people would go down. And that's a really gross sort of catch-22 that's at the center of a lot of uh, U.S. pathologies, political and social. I mean, oh, yes. I mean, this also, is... the people that own houses quite often feel like, oh, it's worth so many hundred thousand, aren't I wealthy? But you have to then, if you were to sell that, then move somewhere else. So you're quite often 
no better off if you stay in your same location or if you move out you might go oh i I like that old house you know it's different if you have hundreds of properties then you're you know really making money yeah it's uh and it's it's a that's an interesting tension in the uh, u.s market now is people are really want to blame private equity you know private equity is coming in and buying up all these single family houses and i'm sure that's a, a real dynamic but i mean really fundamentally like i have a surprising number of, you know, I, I went to a nice school and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of friends from college, uh, and, uh, we're all middle-aged now. And most of them, not quite most, many of them own like two properties, um, because the sort of the way the interest rates have worked for the past 20 years, really up until last year, um, it was just so cheap to buy a second house once you'd got- Well, because money was free, essentially. Indeed, and you could get a renter in there, um, and uh, and then you you look look at you, you're a real estate magnet, um, and uh, yeah, I have a, a, a de- uh, kind of depressingly large group of mm-hmm. college friends who are all landlords now, and they love it because it's then I'm going to buy my third property and I can retire early. It's a great deal for the people. Why work when someone else can do the work for you? Exactly, it's a great deal when you can get on that housing letter. Um, so it's not just Though I'm sure the private equity uh, element here is a is a is a prob- problematic one, um, it's just uh, it's it's easy for those who already have to get more, um, and as the prices go up, those who do not have, those who have not made it under the housing ladder, find it more and more prohibitively prohibitively difficult to put together the down payment you need to find the financing you'd need to actually get on that ladder. So we're seeing a very real sort of uh, class bifurcation um, in a lot of, certainly in the more expensive parts of uh, the United States. And since the panic, the COVID panic-induced uh, real estate market boom that has certainly subsided a little bit in growth, but hasn't, the prices haven't fallen significantly, um, we're seeing that this used to be like a California, New York problem and is now becoming, uh, housing affordability is now becoming an everywhere in the country problem. And if you're worried about Joe Biden getting elected in uh, 2024, this has got to be one of the main things you're worried about, because it's one of the main things the American public is worried about. Yeah. And also, the, well, the shocking thing with the likes of America is it's so vast. You think, how could housing be so expensive? Obviously, there's parts where it is very cheap, but it felt like that should be at least some sort of pressure valve on housing. Oh, well, so there's there's tremendous, tremendous, tremendous political um impetus behind stopping housing being built uh california is the most egregious example of this california has the worst homeless problem in the country and that's because it's impossible to house yourself i think it's quite common to be earning like a hundred thousand a year and that's still not really enough yeah yeah that, that is common in places like new york and california the problem in california the reason there's such a massive homeless population there's not a, any confusion about why there's a homeless population a lot of people would say oh it's drugs and poor choices they're there are plenty of drugs and poor choices in places like West Virginia or Texas, um, but it's just easier to build homes there. Um, so in California, it's like it's not just, you know, it's not like the junkie was going to or like the homeless person was going to buy an awesome house. But because the, you know, a certain class of uh, person can afford to buy a home or, or, or cannot afford to buy a home, then they drive up the rents. Um, and it, it just, uh, it, it, it cascades all the way down to the point where you've got, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people in California who just can't afford a home anymore. And the real big problem for Joe Biden is that, uh, after COVID, this dynamic became somewhat universal across the country. And that's a real problem. Yeah, to your point about like, can you just build more? Like the, I think a classic thing for sort of NIMBYs, not in my backyard folks, in California, says California is full. We've got too many people, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and that is just hogwash. I don't know if you've ever been to Los Angeles, but this is not. This is a city uh, where most people live in like uh, detached single-family homes. Yes, I heard that's like the, one of the few things you can build in America. Yeah, it's real easy uh, to make. You know, Los Angeles is a city of uh, three to five. You know, I think three million, maybe maybe two or three million. It would be incredibly easy to make it a city of 10 million. You just build up. And they've actually, over the past uh, 30 years ago or so, they've actually built out the beginnings of a transit or subway system. You'd have to have many more trains to make it work, but it's on the way towards working. The problem 
is the dynamic that I described earlier is that you've got uh, 59-60% of the country that is really, really invested in nobody building more housing because to build more housing uh, would impact the value of their investments. Oh, yeah. So there's all Classic supply and demand of utter hogwash. There's all kinds of utter hogwash um, that gets pushed around in housing discussions uh, to keep new things from being built. But then America has a two strange things, which is a lot of people living on trailer parks. I heard it was something like 20%. Really? It was really? surprisingly high. That is surprising to me. Uh, Rob is right to be skeptical. Uh, looking around a few places like the BBC Movity, I've never heard of it either, The Guardian, a figure of around 6% keeps coming up. But that is still a lot of people. But back to the pod. A trailer park is you don't own the land, so you're still renting, but you own the trailer and trailers are a depreciating asset. So you still have to pay to maintain this, but it's nobody wants it afterwards. It's just scrap while a house, you can let it go to rack and ruin and oh, wait, it's tripled in price. <laughs> and then you also have these gated communities, which are generally small mansion types for incredibly wealthy people just to get paranoid about poor people coming. So they arm themselves to the teeth. It's just a very sort of strange and terrifying uh, trend we've seen in America. And I think a lot of it's down to the lack of affordable housing for normal people. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, a lot of systems and plans that made a lot of sense, the, 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 the good idea impetus behind all this was we're going to foster home ownership, we're going to uh, uh, make mortgages easier for certain people, we're going to, to do stuff like that. Best laid plans from 80 years ago uh, can lead to some quite dystopian results. And that's why- Are some very good results in the case of Vienna. True enough. There you go. There you go. Because I think so about 20. What's interesting is it obviously seems like they've done this deliberately. 25% uh, live in municipal housing uh, and then 25% are renters and then 25% own their own home. So it's not like a place where you just can't own a home. Um, you still can, but it's just everything's kept in check. And then the other 25% is other, which includes uh, cooperative housing. Which is a very communist sounding, isn't it? Not, not so much from the New York context, Ray. Okay, is that quite common in uh, New York? Yes, uh, I think most uh, apartments in the United States are sold as condominiums, condos, uh, which is a particular kind of ownership structure where you're, you're, um, you've got, I think, firmer rights over your, um, firmer rights over your apartment, but maybe less say in how the building is run. New York. I think because it, it did large-scale apartment uh, living before everybody else, still has a legacy of cooperative um, uh, buildings. Um, so if you own an apartment in New York City uh, that is a co-op, you get shares. You, you are connected to a particular apartment, but you get shares in the cooperative. And it's, it's, it, is a, um, it would be inaccurate, at least in the New York context, to assume that there is a... Uh, hardcore socialist element to cooperative housing because who boy is it not? Some of the most expensive real estate in the world is purchased in um, the United in New York City uh, on this island, Manhattan, uh, in the form of uh, cooperative. Are they still making cooperative or is it something that was made a while ago and now there's just a dwindling stock of them? No, they still do co-ops. Um, this building is a co-op and it, it was only built 20 years ago. Um, so it's it's sort of a choice. I think in most jurisdictions, people prefer condominiums uh, by and large. But New York, you know, we're the only city that has any public housing left, on, or at least at scale. Uh, we've got this weird old uh, grandfathered cooperative scheme for a lot of our buildings that uh, is probably suboptimal. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, we, we, we do things weird here in New York. Do you want to hear one depressing thing about uh, Vienna? Remember sure. that 611 euro figure I give out at uh, monthly rents? That includes electrics and everything. You're kidding. All utilities. That's extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> well, most places that's just the rent and utilities is on top. Gosh, I haven't paid less than 600 euro for an apartment since college. So literally at the turn of the century when I was renting a room in a broken down shack in um, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, I think I was paying under $600. But it's been 20, 25 years. So 
Yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. And one sad trend I'm seeing in America is generally if you do something at scale, it gets cheaper and more efficient. But you'll see these, is it um, five over ones? They basically have, it's like everyone's got their own little air conditioning. So if you look on the roof, you see lots of what look like little mushrooms because everyone has their own little air conditioning instead of one giant air conditioner that would do everyone and make it cheaper for everyone. It's so you can meter each one. Well, I like the uh, the uh, the five over ones. I like those. The, the yuppie fish okay. tanks, uh, they're called. <laughs> the, uh, because what you have to understand, Ray, is that in the United States, those five over ones are most often replacing single family housing. Um, at best, they're replacing uh, townhomes. Um, so the the, the density. But it is an example of uh, you know medium housing. You know, instead of this you know giant commie blocks or something, you'd think of oh, you can't just have you know five or four story buildings, and it's a lot more efficient than a single dwelling. Oh, for sure, for sure. And uh, Washington D.C. is a fascinating. A test case or something like that. Uh, it, it was a city that was incredibly impacted by the white flight dynamic that we're talking about earlier. I think its population was like 800,000 in the 50s or 60s and fell down to the point where I, I moved there in 2003, I think pretty close to the low point. And I think it might have fallen below 500,000. Um, just, just, you know, extraordinary. And it's uh, Washington, D.C. is kind of unique among U.S. distinctions where there, there's a beautiful park or two, but it really is just sort of all city. And, um, you know, close to a third or more than a third of its population just left. Uh, it was famous uh, for riots uh, in the aftermath of the King assassination in 1968. And then it became notorious uh, for crime, uh, sort of murder city uh, or what have you. Um, and that's still the the city it was when I moved there in 2003. Um when I got there, foot soldier of gentrification that I am, uh, the city was in the midst of a of a shocking turnaround. Frankly, it's you know all the money that you know the, that we nominally spent in Afghanistan was mostly spent in Washington D.C. So that was you know about two trillion dollars that got funneled into general military industrial complex stuff, and then just continued to be cycled to yoga studios and nice restaurants and massive massive real estate development. Uh, so the city isn't quite up to its population of 800,000, but I think it's well into the 700,000s. And it has been just fascinating to watch that happen. I haven't lived in Washington, D.C. since 2011, but I had friends for years, uh, they've since moved on, who, who every time I came back to D.C., they would delight in not just taking me to a new restaurant or a new music venue, but into an entirely new neighborhood of the city that had not existed when I had moved in 2011. So you could do the old classic of, oh, when I used to live here, it was all fields. Yep, yep, it was all, it was, <laughs> well, it wasn't fields. It was probably uh, 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 junkies and uh, warehouses, um, depending, depending on the neighborhood we're talking about. Um, but it, it's been just this extraordinary shift, and that, that five over one housing you're talking about has been a key part of that densification of, of Washington, D.C., there's this fascinating dynamic since we're on the topic of housing. There is more housing in New York City than there has ever been, but there's not as many people, uh, or not at least proportionally as many people as there should be with that housing if you compare it to earlier generations. And I think this is a dynamic across uh, the United States, but certainly more extreme in New York City, because people just don't have as big families anymore. Because a lot of these units being built up, uh, including this one, uh, is are, are sort of sole sole proprietor units. Uh, instead of a family of six or six or seven living in a one bedroom, which you might have had uh, throughout New York's history, uh, you have like a you know one guy uh, living in a one bedroom, and that that uh, that uh, really skews statistics, and it's kind of a fascinating dynamic, I think. Well, it does believe that you know, being unable to, you know, move out or have your own place early on does, you know, reduce your likelihood of starting a family. You feel like quite often it was something, you you know, you got married, started a family and then worried about life. And quite often now you worry about life and then get a house and a family. So, you know, being able to fix housing would also help people live less lonely lives, I feel. Oh, uh, no question. And it, I think it gets to... 
Um, I mean, housing is one of the really key things that is just dramatically screwed up in the United States. I would, I would say housing, I would say education, uh, and I would say healthcare. Three things that are all essentially f uh, free are very well subsidized in Austria. Yeah. Um, and are the, 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 the meat of a, of a worthwhile life. Uh, you, you need these things to be accessible. And that's the thing is in the United States in the post-World War II era, when these programs around subsidizing mortgages, subsidizing homeownership, what have you, got started, the abundance of uh, land in the United States and materials and entrepreneurial gumption, this, that, and this, the other thing, meant that at the start of sort of the post-World uh, War II system, all of these things were cheap. Um, education was largely free uh, up until the, the 70s. Um, that overstates it a little bit, but compared to current prices, not by much. Um, uh, healthcare was uh, provided by the free market, but there was just a lot less healthcare that was provided uh, up until, um, you know, it's gotten exponentially larger uh, amounts of services have become necessary and complexity uh, in recent decades. Um, so healthcare is a joke, and housing is um, what I guess wasn't reckoned uh, with by post-war planners was the fact that all these homeowners would develop such a strong interest in pulling up the ladder after them. In um, well, that's one thing that happened in the UK thanks to Margaret Thatcher. Oh, well, she always does great things. Yes, yeah. uh, it's both very well, you know, appreciated, and also it did have long-term consequences, which was the fact uh, council houses, so government housing, housing, she gave you the option to buy it, which doesn't seem that bad at the time because it's basically, you know, if you had uh, been in it for so long, it was counted as you'd pay towards it, so it would be quite cheap to buy it, and they, but it just meant that because they weren't building any more the supply of government housing just slowly dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until now where it's incredibly difficult to get a council house. So you've just sort of cannibalized what you even did have. It's not the fact like Vienna where you're constantly growing and you haven't even just got the stockpile you have. You've actively went out of your way to diminish it. And then obviously whoever bought, you know, the people that worked lived in the council houses that bought it and sold it may have made a bit of a profit, but it's the you know, these big um hedge funds that are really raking it in. And that was very intentional by Margaret Thatcher. This is just sort of killing that that social aspect of uh, But also turning a lot of Labour voters into conservative voters. Uh, by giving them a free house. Essentially. <laughs> weirdly. Well, it wasn't free free, but it was mm -hmm. massively because then they weren't, you know, they felt like conservatives tend to be homeowners and more worried about markets. I think the the process in the U.S. Uh, played out a little bit differently. There was never as many uh, uh, public housing units as there were in Britain, of course. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, nobody really wanted to live there. I, I think there was a lot of conscious displacement. I hope six sticks in my head. I can't recall what the details of that are. I think that was a Clinton program. But the idea was we're going to subsidize new, better places to stay, and we're going to try to make it um, more attractive to private developers, and they'll handle that, and like uh, this, that, and the other. And a lot of people just got these massive tower blocks, which still very much exist. I'm looking at one outside my window in New York, were knocked down across the country. And um, after that dispersal, you know, it was seen as a virtue that these people would be in mixed income neighborhoods. And like, you know, really the details about what actually happened to all these people are a little hard to find. Um, it wasn't quite as uh, in your face and obvious uh, as uh, the Thatcher experience in the UK, but it is definitely something that also happened in the United States. It, it's, public housing was not just, um, didn't die a natural death, it was, it was killed. Yeah, but it, that's definitely something Vienna's actively um, sought out to get rid of, which is sort of private contractors. Mm -hmm. The idea is the government knows how to do this. And, you know, any profits we make will just essentially feed back in instead of you trying to make it as cheap as possible and maximize profits as much as possible. Wait, so it's a, it's a government authority in Singapore does construction work? Or, sorry, not Singapore. Not in Singapore. Yeah, sorry, in, in Vienna. Yeah. 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 That's extraordinary. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. That's very socialist, Ray. It is. It is. Even though, sadly, um, Austria's got a bit, a lot more right wing recently. A uh, coalition with the Greens and uh, Austria's People's Party, 
which I guess are center right, but there are some very. Is it the Freedom Party of Austria? Is a, a proper yeah, far right populism, nationalist, conservatist. I've never. So that's quite put, scary. I've never put a ton <laughs> of thought into Austria. I remember it was sort of the further canary in the coal mine. Uh, what was his name? Jörg Hader or something. Um, there was a, or maybe I'm thinking of something in somebody entirely different. Uh, there was a politician. Was that back in the nineties that Austria elected a, a politician that was seen as scandalously right wing by the European union and was, I think to some extent ousted, uh, cause he came from one of the parties that you talked about. And man, that seems, that seems a long time ago now, right? Doesn't it in the era of Viktor Orban and uh, whoever's running Poland? That's another thing that, uh, Vienna seems to have very little of, which is homelessness. Mm-hmm. Funny that. Yeah, weird. If you make an affordable living a place, you don't have a homeless problem. Imagine Not only that. that, if you can't afford it, they, mm-hmm. you just don't pay anything. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yes, because it seems to work out cheaper to not have homeless people. Oh, 100%. But the incredible costs of incarcerating or um, having, you know, being forced to provide emergency medical services to somebody who has had an accident because they live outside the home is well outweighed. And that's it. what's irritating is that's something that we've known for a decade now. Um, I remember reading about Housing First as a policy to deal with homeless uh, a decade or so ago. Apparently, Texas has done it and has had tremendous success. Like, they, if you find a homeless person, it doesn't matter what kind of substance abuse problems they have. It doesn't matter. They don't have a job. You just give them somewhere consistent to live that is theirs, and they can sleep there. And the, the positive effects are immense, Absolutely immense, and um, it's a real, it's a real shame that we're not trying that at scale. I think it's become a meme on the right wing that oh, we've been talking about housing first for a decade, and it's failed everywhere. There's still homeless people, and it's just so disingenuous because this has not been uh, tried with any scale um, in any um, large scale jurisdiction, uh, with the exception of some select sections of Turkish uh, of Texas, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great policy. It's it's it gives people the flexibility they need uh, to live lives uh, with dignity and avoid uh, needing to drug themselves at the gills to get through the day. Um, and we know it works, and we continue to choose to not do it because I guess it's more important to uh, beef up our military so we can start a war with uh, Russia and China and Iran all at the same time. Do you feel New York is very uh, mixed when it comes to income? Like, do you feel the rich and the poor live together cheek by jowl or? More than they do anywhere else in the United States, that's for sure. The problem is that it's becoming so hostile uh, for people who earn a, like, decent normal wage. Um, It it just, it it is such an expensive city. Um, And that has, like, a filtering process. There is economic diversity in this city, but I think... More often than not, the 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 folks who uh, would fill out that economic diversity uh, at the lower echelons of that distribution are biking in from uh, other states, uh, other islands, uh, far, far, far away. There are still uh, certainly a few low-income territories in uh, in New York City, um, and. Um, Again, I think I'm looking at one right now. Up here in Harlem, on top of Central Park, there's just a swath of uh, public housing uh, buildings. But I think more and more, New York City is sort of becoming a, a, a city uh, for uh, uh, for the wealthy, which is uh, regrettable. Just that's something there's emphasis on in Vienna is making sure that the, the poor, middle class, upper class genuine, genuinely live together, live near each other and have them as neighbors. So you have a lot more... Um, cohesion yeah that's important singapore man they they have you heard about this they go a can you tell me about singapore because it's it's a blind spot of mine i don't know a ton about it but i've read a number of articles over the years talking about their public uh, housing approach and my understanding is it's somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of everybody in singapore live in public housing which is kind of incredible kind of extraordinary um, but of course, Singapore is an authoritarian state, a very successful one that I think is very U.S. aligned. Uh, so we don't hear so much about how nasty they are. Um, but uh, they don't just uh, make sure there's economic diversity in housing. Uh, as a country that's made up of, I believe, folks of Chinese descent, folks of Indian descent, and uh, native native Malays, I believe uh, they enforce um, residential anti segregation. 
Uh, so they make damn sure that you're not living in a building that's all Indian or all Chinese or all Malay, um, which is just fascinating to me. Um, I don't know that that's necessary. I would perhaps argue that that is uh, too much of a limitation on one's personal choice or what have you, but still it's just fascinating. Um, and again, another indication that nothing about housing is immutable. Nothing about housing has to be this just permanently screwed. Um, uh, we, ha we have the tools we need to change it, but we continue to neglect to do so. Do you feel, are there a lot of landlords in American politics? Are they very close with the, you know, construction lobbies? Well, that's the awkwardness, um, is that there are absolutely tons of landlords in American politics, but you know, do they identify as landlords? Um, New York City is a great example where you've got um, some of the wealthiest and most property-having uh, developers in, in the country. Uh, there's... there's uh, but then you've got a lot of folks like my friends from college who just own one more unit. Uh, actually, that's less so in New York because in New York, the tenant protections are so extreme um, and so positive that most uh, smaller business people, you know, people are like, I'm just going to buy a second house and try and get rental income and hope it more than covers the mortgage. Uh, a lot of those people are rightly too scared uh, to rent uh, to be landlords in New York City. Um, so that's certainly a, a limiting factor. Do you feel that's a positive limiting factor or a um, I think it's a negative one. The, the New York has uh, extraordinarily strong rent control, extraordinarily strong layers. I've always meant to sort of sit down and uh, actually try to parse out what some of this is, but there's only so many hours in the day. Um, the traditional libertarian view that I espoused when I was younger is like, oh, it's rent control is the problem. The only reason things are expensive in, uh, in New York is rent control, and that's that's... I think just not true. It's it's housing. It's housing. Concerns. Well, I think Vienna, Vienna's a great example of where rent control uh, can be a positive. I think the problem is that it has to be part of a comprehensive system that is carefully designed. It has to be done right. It can't be a token gesture or merely on its own. And it's clear to me that like almost nobody in the United States has any um, interest in in um, that kind of comprehensive planning. Um, so it just it seems. It seems like it'd be nice, but it seems like it's pretty unlikely that we would ever uh, be able to experience something similar in the United States. I do wonder if, like, I mean, this usually, you know, every five years or so, there's talk of some billionaire is going to found a city or something. I recall that oh, was brilliant. one of those like recently. Like Akon was going to find, uh, well, he apparently scammed a lot of African leaders, so I don't know where Akon City is going to be in Central Africa, but um, yes, they always sound like a disaster. Yeah, it, it's, uh, but, you know, if you really wanted to try out a new dynamic for U.S. housing, I think at this point it's you'd have to go found a new city. Or, or you could, I mean, there's plenty of Rust Belt cities that don't have anybody, uh, I mean, they're, they're not completely vacant. But if you wanted to set up new housing paradigms, new contractual relationships, new new approaches, uh, you know, why not uh, nowhere Pennsylvania that's probably got an urban core that you could do a lot with? Okay, a big part of it is central uh, a central vision. You know, the, it feels like they want to have something. While I feel like with a a totally capitalistic system, it's quite um, anarchic. Nearly, it's generally just I'll do this, you do that. We'll scab each other off, and hopefully, we'll be rich and our tenants. We don't really care. Because <laughs> I'm thinking of um, what you had said about Donald Trump, and if you were to really go after him for what he had done in housing in New York. Um, you'd have to arrest half of anyone involved in construction in New York. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think there's uh, some truth to that. Extraordinarily corrupt industry, extraordinarily, and ripe for d disruption. It, it... And from what you have said, New York's one of the better ones for housing in America. So think, think what California's like. I don't know about better. Um, it's 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 very difficult, especially now. It's very difficult to find a place to live in New York. I'm lucky that I'm pretty locked in here, um, but. Uh, during COVID, uh, Manhattan did experience a few price declines, but with the sort of opening up process, uh, no matter how many uh, times we had to back off of it, uh, started from 2021, uh, real estate prices and rents in Manhattan have just been obscene. Um, uh, I think probably exceeding California levels, but don't quote me on that. What piece of legislation do you see being proposed in America that you're optimistic for for housing? I uh, can't speak exactly to the, 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 the minutia or what whatever state bill it is, but in California, they have been taking some serious strides. 
Um, the addition of Excel, uh, accessory dwelling units, I believe is what they're called, ADUs, um, has a really revolutionary uh, impact in uh, Los Angeles specifically, but in a range of um, California cities. So what an ADU is, is essentially like a grandma apartment or even like a grandma tiny house. Uh, you've got a detached uh, single family home, but then, you know, with a driveway by it, but then at the end of that driveway, you can build a little sort of mini house. Uh, and there are constraints on like the size of it or what have you, but they are brand new housing units adding to density. And I think the tens of thousands have been built since this was, since this was permitted. And that's just, that's extraordinary. I mean, sure, uh, it'd be better if Los Angeles was putting up streets full of, uh, was it five over ones or, or what have you. Um, but just the fact that every plot of land in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm not sure this may be limited to some extent, but my understanding is that now on every plot of land in Los Angeles um, that had a single household, you can now add a second household, uh, which is just extraordinary. I think it's going to be great for the California economy. Um is just a drop in the bucket and nowhere near enough uh, to solve uh, the homeless crisis that California is currently experiencing. But um, but a good start, a good effort. But another emphasis uh, Vienna has is just on having very beautiful buildings. Is that something you'd find in New York? God, no. Um, if you look at things that are built uh, recently and the emphasis, it depends on what you're looking at that's being built. Um, some truly impressive uh skyscrapers that i i was initially irritated by i called the first one needle dick tower for uh for a number of uh number of years but now you've got billionaires row and you've actually got this is very strange and very risky especially post covid um you've actually got some office space being built uh i don't know if you've read about this but there's calamitous oversupply of office space in new york city with yes. remote work. there was a talk of them turning it into housing but because buildings are so massive now it's much harder to convert modern office blocks into housing than say 100 years ago yeah a lot of the the uh, wall street uh proper so that in new york city there's midtown uh, which is sort of around grand central and uh, focused on the sort of connecticut and new jersey suburbs and transit in and out and then there's the classic business district, which is downtown around Wall Street. And that's just most largely becoming residential. Um, it's called FIDI, the financial district. And because those buildings are so old, um, some of them are more amenable to residential uh, conversions. Because I think that was when they built them originally, it, it was always the idea of, oh, if it doesn't do office space, it can do housing. But now you just have things that were only built for office space. So it's very hard to convert them. Yeah, these sort of mid-century uh, behemoth uh, modernist towers are very hard to take a big glass curtain wall and, and break it up. And I think and, they will, they feel the like fire code and stuff for housing. Well, I think what's key is you, you're. I don't believe you're allowed to provide housing in this city without windows. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, and you know, you you have like a massive trading floor or what was, you know, just a big, big space for office drones. You can, you know, you, you can't use that space particularly uh, efficiently. Um, but uh, sorry, you're talking about the aesthetics of these buildings. Because when you were talking about um, white flight, that was one issue is uh, to essentially keep middle class people to stop it sort of um, becoming a rough area is to do their best to make these things beautiful, to make people want to be in them to have amenities most people would associate with high-end hotels the the problem is that a lot of the the aesthetic um things that we associate with beautiful new york city buildings aren't really that possible anymore um just because the amount of labor that's involved and like that degree of ornamentation or what have you so the really prestige buildings the new office spaces if you've got like i think you call it tier one or class one office space you can still fill it because it's prestigious and it's brand new um and but most of the big buildings that are being built are sort of uh uh millionaires multi-millionaires condos built on top of each other um those buildings i've do find somewhat aesthetically interesting i like a big uh, skyscraper but it's sort of sort of like mass housing being built for folks. Like uh, I, I can't say it's particularly attractive. It's sort of all there was a, a very big public housing um, building built. Uh, I think it it's, may or may not be quite finished yet. Uh, uh, just ten blocks from me, 
Um, and that, uh, I think is 30 stories tall and I like it. I like a big, tall building, but it, it, it already feels quite institutional. And I'd imagine that 10, 15 years from now, it, it may or may, I mean, who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be a beloved, um, example of, uh, happy, healthy architecture for people. Um, but I can already kind of sense its future being a little bit run down. I hope I'm wrong about that, but you know. Do you feel there needs to be a dramatic uh, focus on affordable housing with a quality of life with a central vision? A hundred percent. I think that it, it's it's among the the things that need to get fixed in the United States. Uh, I don't know what that looks like. So many people own their own homes. Um, but I absolutely know that if we're going to avoid uh, massive populist outbursts uh, like the the Trump one we're still currently experiencing, there absolutely must be uh, more uh, more affordable housing provided across the United States. Uh, it was, time was, like for most of the past decade, I mean, this has been acute for decades. This has been a real problem for decades. But up until the COVID pandemic, there was actually a, a, a not good dynamic, but with a silver lining or like a benign thing is that, you know, New York, California, Florida, even some parts of Texas now, these real economic engines for the country were becoming so expensive that people had no choice but to leave. Um, and in the, the, the political economy of the United States today, you've got these massively important cities, and then you've got a lot of places that are just kind of hurting for people. So it was kind of nice that in, in a smaller scale before COVID, this dynamic of uh, uh, sort of uh, middle class refugees uh, from New York and California sort of filling in the rest of the country was a, was a great thing. During after COVID, this trickle, this sort of positive trickle became a massive flood. So you've now got a lot of states, a lot of states that have the potential to lean pretty red or, or, or are purple. Uh, where all of the locals have been displaced by Californians and New Yorkers who feel put upon in middle class, but just absolutely blow any local out of the water with how much they can pay for homes. So what used to be uh, an, a, a sort of more localized problem of housing affordability has become a nationwide plague. Uh, and really, like it's, it's, uh, it would be very smart for the Biden administration to think of some kind of way um, to impact this, uh, or some kind of program to, uh, or at least propose one, uh, before the election, because it's, it's housing is up there with healthcare. And I guess education is a little further down the line, but still important. Uh, just these three, uh, domains where cost has become so prohibitive that, yeah, you can talk about, well, technically inflation is not going up anymore and you can still get a really cheap fridge from China or Mexico. Um, and it's utterly meaningless if you can't afford to live anywhere and you can't afford uh, health care for your kids. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I would say that affordable housing is probably should be one of the top priorities uh, of the next election. Um, but I'm not really seeing any serious uh, uh, proposals around it, which is a shame. Too many voters have seen the cost of their house go up and feel like they're wealthy, although they're not really. Yep. I think that's uh, there's a lot of truth to that, Ray. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the More Freedom Foundation podcast. We hope you uh, join us next time. Thank you very much. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob O'Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.